0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Without question, the big event of the fall art season is the Pacific Standard Time L.A.L.A. series of exhibitions across Southern California. The initiative, a product of the Getty Foundation, is a geographically and art historically broad exploration of Latin American and Latino art. PST includes the presentation of scores of exhibitions and events at museums and kunsthalls across what was once called Semi-Tropic, California, and scores more related exhibitions at commercial galleries. The first PST shows are already on view, but they really begin to roll out this weekend. Joining me to preview PST, and if you're not in California, buy your plane tickets now, is Los Angeles Times journalist Carolina Miranda. Her stories advancing PST exhibitions and narratives have already started running. We'll have links to many of them on manpodcast.com. Speaking of links, we'll also have links to all of the shows Carolina and I discuss, making manpodcast.com a one-stop resource for entree and all things PST. On the second segment, I'll talk with Leila Cardenas, whose work is in the very first PST show to open, Home, So Different, So Appealing, at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. But first, Carolina Miranda, after the break. This fall, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Radical Women, Latin American Art 1960-1985. Including more than 280 works created by 120 artists and collectives from 15 different countries, the exhibition highlights the contributions of Latin American, Latina, and Chicana women to contemporary art. Radical Women is part of Pacific Standard Time LALA, an initiative of the Getty with arts institutions across Southern California, exploring Latin American and Latino art in dialogue with Los Angeles. Radical Women, Latin American Art, 1960 to 1985, on view September 15th to December 31st at the Hammer Museum. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Paint the Revolution, Mexican Modernism, 1910 to 1950, the most comprehensive exhibition of modern Mexican art displayed in the United States in more than seven decades featuring some 175 works and including masterpieces by Frida Kahlo, Jose Clemente Orozco, Diego Rivera, and Rufino Tamayo. Now on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash revolution for more. And we're back. Carolina Miranda, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It's PST season, which for media people and museum goers and art lovers alike means both joy, fun, miles on our cars, but also, oh my God, there are a lot of shows. How do we begin to address them? And so that's what you and I are going to talk about. And let's start by talking about whether there are any particular themes across the dozens and dozens of of shows that you think readers and visitors might do well to focus on.
1: Well, I think with 80 plus shows, it's nice to say that probably no themes and a lot of themes. <laughs> we have everything. From, I know it's overwhelming. Every time I look at the list of exhibitions, trying to wrap my brain around it is a little overwhelming. It's 80 plus exhibition events related to Pacific Standard Time. So uh, and we're just at the beginning of it. So still wrapping my brain around it. I think that there are a couple of things that do emerge. What's interesting is that there are a number of shows that you know, look at this issue of the promise of modernism, that the promise of modernism has not lived up to what it was meant to be. For, for Latin America. So things like an exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art, San Diego uh, Memories of Underdevelopment, which has not opened yet and so have not seen, as well as the upcoming show at the L.A. Municipal Art Gallery. That exhibition is titled Condemned to be Modern, by the way. Those exhibitions are really looking at how the list of modernism did not live up to what it was supposed to be, uh, industrialization, neoliberalism, all of those things. So I think it's going to be something to look out for. I also think, you know, in terms of, there's a lot of 20th century, 1st century art on view as part of this. I think the theme to keep an eye on is Latino and Latin America are, are, are engaged with what's happening in their countries, but they're also deeply engaged with U.S. policy and pop culture and mass media. And so I think that emerging as a theme in all of these shows isn't just going to be Latin America and what is going on in Latin America. It's going to be us. And by us, I mean the United States of, of countries and cultures that have to, have to contend with our size presence on the continent and what that means politically and economically and culturally. And the picture that they might be painting of us might not always be the greatest picture. That idea of American exceptionalism that we love to sort of go on about as a country is, you know, we're not so exceptional. We are part of this continent that as much as we see ourselves as a on this continent. The fact is that we share the history with the continent. We have the same history of colonialism. We have the same history of slavery. We have the same history of independence movements. There's so much there's so much of what's happened in the United States historically and culturally that jibes with what has happened in Latin America. And I think what this exhibitions might do is get us think about that. Get us to think about our place. And by that, I mean, the United States place in this continent as a part of this continent, not apart from it.
0: So I think that's a, a really important point in, in two ways. I, I think Americans tend to forget that we've been at war or have participated in wars and kind of uh, extrajudicial police actions in much of of Central and South America. And I would expect we're going to see that reflected in these shows.
1: Oh, I think so. I mean, I think when you think about, for example, radical women, the show of art by women at the hammer museum that's going to open at the hammer museum in September or the exhibition of 1990 artists from Mexico going to be at the, at the Armory Center for the Arts in Pasadena, all the way to uh, Joshua Ocon's installation at the Torrance Art Museum, you're going to see artists contending with the presence of the U.S. politically and economically in not so positive ways, so a lot of the artists in Radical Women were artists who were living in the era of the dictatorships in, in South America, So in Argentina, in Brazil, in Chile, their art was as much about dealing with personal issues of the body as it was about dealing with political issues of the body with repressive regimes that we supported. You know, we supported the coup in Chile, a 17-year writing dictatorship that resulted from it. So we are going to be looking, even though we might not think we are connected to those issues, we are very connected to those issues.
0: I think the other political issue present that visitors to these shows and readers of of the catalogs will have in mind is the Trump administration, its bigotry, and its just the flat outrageousness of its address of this region, particularly Mexico. I guess it's, you know, these shows aren't open yet. You and I have been been looking through catalogs and checklists and, and summaries of these shows. And maybe it's useful to note that these are all shows planned Four, five three four five years ago as I look through these shows I'm not sure I see a whole lot of them that are likely to brush too close to present Trumpist politics do you agree
1: well some of the shows are open. a couple of the shows at Lacma most of the shows have not opened yet
0: the big the big opening weekend is September 16th but a number of shows here and there are are already open
1: exactly and there's a, a bunch that are to open on the on the end of September 9th so they when the kickoff really begins, in terms of addressing Trumpist politics, exactly, you're right. A lot of these shows have been some have been decades in the making. I know Cecilia Fajardo Hill, who is one of the curators of the Radical Women show at the at. at She's been working on this concept for way before PST was even a figment of anybody's imagination. So some of these shows have spent years in the making, but a direct response is not something that we're likely to see simply because a lot of these concepts had already been figured out by the time that Trump got elected to office. However, I do think that we're going to see themes you know, related to these issues of politics, of identity and the border that are part of the current moment. The Craft and Folk Art Museum is going to actually have a show that is devoted to the issues of the border. So we will see it. I, it just might not be the direct response, which I'm okay with because I, I also feel like sometimes reactive art cannot always is not always the best art. <laughs> <laughs> and and so what I what I what I really want to see what I'm interested in seeing is is work that reflects the history of Latin America that reflects the Latin American viewpoint in a very considered and, and thought out way but I think the arrival of these shows to California at this moment of time at this incredibly xenophobic moment in time it, it's really important and I think if they can get people thinking about the history of Latin America, about the people of Latin America, about the present U.S. Latinos, which are so vastly overlooked in our society. You know, when when you think about American colonial history, you always think of of the East Coast and the British and the Dutch and, you know, the and Louisiana Purchase. That is the history of the United States. We don't think of, say, the Southwest Spanish colonialism, of the Latin American presence, of the Latino presence, uh, being part of U.S. history, but it is, it is, and I think collectively these shows get a a very interesting statement at this time, even not reacting directly to Trump. So I
0: think you raise an interesting point about the history of American colonialism and, and probably the most acute of those histories is the series, really, of clashes between a westering America and and a faltering Mexico in in the early to mid-19th century. Are there any shows that hit that period that particularly catch your eye? One, One does for me, California Mexicana, Missions to Murals, 1820 to 1930, which will be at the Laguna Art Museum in Orange County, and it opens on October 15th. The catalog, which is uh, published by UC Press, full disclosure, also the publisher of my forthcoming book, is, is, is frankly both gorgeous and, and spots um, a bit of a, uh, a disappointment on, on, on the history side. That one might be the most direct address of, of California and Mexico, but there are others, such as a show at the, the Riverside Art Museum that looks at Spanish colonialism and, and, and the Inland Empire.
1: Yeah, those shows, I'm not, since they haven't opened yet and they're they're not scheduled to open for a while, especially the Laguna Art Museum one, which doesn't open until October, I haven't looked at as much. There's been so much I've been focusing on open immediately, but I do think there are shows as well. For example, the... The design show at LACMA, I think, will be an interesting look. called Found in Translation, Design in California and Mexico, 1915 to 1985. So not 19th century, but I think a really interesting look at exchange of ideas at the level of design and architecture between the two nations. I think it's if you think about... Some of the architecture that has been historically associated with the california landscape the the mission style architecture the Spanish revival architecture Spanish colonial architecture, all of that stuff comes as a result of this intense design dialogue going going back and forth between California and Mexico so Not directly addressing the period you're asking about, but I think certainly all of this has its roots in that, because that visual architectural identity was born in that era.
0: I think the shows maybe address the present, you know, the Trumpist present in one very indirect but maybe surprising way. Is there a number of shows that look at murals and muralism, uh, individual muralists, both past and present, and... Murals in the 20th century, or at least Mexican murals in the 20th century, had their heyday in a very specific populist moment during which there were conflicts between capitalism at the top and capitalism at the bottom, labor, religion and faith, two different societies trapped within one country, segmented or segregated societies. And it seems like some of those same issues are back.
1: Yes. And I think not just through murals, there are some really interesting shows that address that history. I think one of the ones that, that I'm looking forward to that I think should be an interesting dialogue is the one at the Pomona College Museum of Art. And it's called Prometheus 2017, Four Artists from Mexico Revisit Orozco. Pomona College has a very important Orozco mural, and they are presenting four four artists whose work in some way – dialogues with that of Orozco. So not a direct response to his mural, but work that is representative of his ideals and brings his ideals to the present. I think that one is one that I'm particularly interested in. And then Chicano muralism, which was highly influenced by Mexican muralism, directly and indirectly. La Plaza de Cultura y Arte, Is Having a big exhibition on the subject that will look at the importance of murals in the Chicano community in terms of as tools of political activism, as tools of building a cultural identity and as tools of in some way seizing the landscape. You know, that was all around them. But I also think, you know, touching on that point, you know, touching on this idea that that moment is also this moment. There is also an exhibition, the Autry Museum of the American West, that is going to be showing images from the La Raza newspaper which was an activist Chicano newspaper from the 60s and 70s. And boy, if that is not something that directly contends with our moment, you know, I kind of don't know what it is. These are uh, La Raza was an activist newspaper, a Chicano activist paper based in Lincoln Heights uh, here in Los Angeles. And the pictures document everything they document. Protest. They document daily life. They document struggle. They document the whole story of immigration and assimilation, and the and sort of wanting equity in a society that doesn't always want to give you equity in return. And so, I think that 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 show is going to direct in very that is good. That show is going to connect in very direct ways to what is happening at this moment.
0: Yeah, that's an exciting show that is built out of the archive at the Chicano Studies Research Center uh, at UCLA
1: 25,000 nearly 25,000 photos that they have that they've digitized recently it's been an extraordinary effort on on behalf of the Chicano Studies Research Center to get all of that archived
0: tying up murals and landscape there's one other big mural in the landscape show and that's the show on Judy Baca's Great Wall of Los Angeles which extends about twenty eight hundred feet into a flood control channel that runs through the San Fernando Valley, the Cal State University Northridge Art galleries are doing a show about about it,
1: exactly, yeah, and it, what's great about some of these murals, you know, in the case of Prometheus and uh, Judy Baca's work, they're still there, and you can go still still go see the actual mural and And same with the the Murales Rebeldes show at the La Plaza Gallery. That show is more about murals, but there are going to be murals as part of it. Uh, I know that Barbara Carrasco made, who's an important art, uh, artist of the 70s and 80s era here in Los Angeles, made a quote-unquote portable mural that uh, I believe is going to be hung at, U- at Union Station during the course of the show. So you, you can see the original work that inspired some of the work that we're seeing today, which is which is pretty special, I think.
0: You know, i found that thinking about these shows in terms of media instead of nationalities or politics or art trends to be the most effective way of making sense of it all. So for you know as a westerner maybe maybe I'm already used to that. I mean in the the, the west's first you know contribution to the history of of American art, United States art anyway, is is via photography, which was a brand new medium at the time. And one of the things I noticed about a lot of these shows is that artists are, across many of them, embracing what are new media or new ways of making art, say in a conceptualist, in, cons- in specific conceptualist veins, that are contemporary to their time. And I, and I did, did anything about media. I mean, there are a lot of photography shows, for example. Did anything about media strike you as you, as you thought through the slate?
1: You know, that's interesting that you bring that up, because having just done a big story on the Radical Women show at the Hammer, you know, the, the, the radicality of that work wasn't just in the ideas behind it. It was in the type of media that they used. Photography was a big part of it. But it's these generations of artists reacting to these oppressive conditions in ways that sort of grasp at the new tools of their era. Like they weren't going to make their big statement via painting. They were going to make it with the tools of their generation. And so that was going to be video. It was going to be photography. It was going to be ephemeral actions, street performances, highly conceptual works, basically anything you can imagine these artists did it. And I, I think certainly one of the examples of that in terms of media being such an important thing and one of the shows that has been years of, in, in the making, even prior to the specific standard time, is the Video Art in Latin America show at LAX Art. Glenn Phillips and Elena Stromberg, who are the co-curators of that, have been for a decade been working on amassing an archive of Latin American video art. And, and video art was so important to the continent because it emerged in this period where it emerged as a reaction, as a statement, as we are going to use the same tools of mass media that are used to manipulate us to make a statement about what is happening in the context of, say, a dictatorship or or some other difficult political situation. And so that show, I think, will be really interesting because, first of all, they've gone back to the roots of, of video art in Latin America, they're looking at it all the way back into the 1960s, and and they're they're looking at this medium that that was just this very important tool for the artists of that era because they didn't just want to break the political systems. They it's almost like they wanted to break with the artistic systems.
0: I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense, and it brings to mind a show of Guatemalan art in Santa Barbara.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. That one is Guatemala from 33,000 Kilometers, Contemporary Art, 1960 to Present. Those, again, are a lot of artists dealing with an oppressive military regime, a genocide of Maya Indians, and all of this a lot of it's sponsored by the U.S. state, so a confluence of the factors that we've been talking about over this podcast. And I think what's interesting about the show, and I think this is why Pacific Standard Time in general, I think it's just going to be such a fascinating thing to experience, is that when was the last time you saw a show? Guatemalan art from 1960 to the present. And I, I feel like this show is not only going to be important to a U.S. audience. This show is going to be important to a Latin American audience, to a Guatemalan audience, because there is going to be the space and the resources to explore ideas that perhaps haven't really received a lot of attention in the past.
0: Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the most I mean, that's that's one of the subjects of all of these shows about which I know the least. Exactly. I'm, I am not up on Guatemalan contemporary art. And, and here <laughs> here we all get a chance to to get basically a one day seminar on it.
1: Exactly. I mean, I think everybody knows the performance work of Regina Jose Galindo. She's like the big Guatemalan performance artist. But, you know, what milieu did she emerge from? What space did she work with? What other artists were making work in that context? Like, I can't say I know. I haven't I haven't focused on that show yet. So I still don't know. And I'm really excited to figure out, you know, a, a, to, to to learn about that, to have that teased out for myself and I, and I think in keeping with that what's really interesting to me you know in terms of thinking about interesting things that this series is emerging beyond just the geographic it's this idea of identity and ethnicity for example the Japanese American National Museum is doing an exhibition about the Chinese diaspora in Latin America. So looking at the presence of Japanese immigrants in, in uh, Lima, in California, in Mexico City, Sao Paulo, it's an exhibition called Trans-Pacific Borderlands. At the same time, there's an exhibition, a, a pair of exhibitions going on at the California African American Museum and the Museum of Chinese in America. But the Chinese presence in Latin America, I think so often when we think about Latin American identity, For people, it's really this idea of, you know, the mestizo, the Spanish-Indigenous hybrid that has kind of blandly come to represent the, the continent. But the fact is that the Asian presence has been so important. In terms of the development of the nations, building of those nations, it was the Chinese, just like they did in the United States, helped build major railroads around Latin America. Chinese and Japanese culture and food is omnipresent throughout the the continent you can't look for example at the cuisine of Peru without looking at the cuisine of Japan and so I think those kinds of shows are gonna are gonna allow us to look at, at Latin America from a new light and also allow us to look at you know some of the the ethnic issues of ethnicity and representation of an equity that they have you know just like we have they they have those too so I think I that's going to be I think that's gonna be really interesting the the Chinese show is called Circle and Circuits, History and the Art of the Chinese Caribbean Diaspora, and those take place at California African American Museum and the Chinese American Museum. I, I misspoke the title earlier, but I'm really looking forward to, the, to those, the the Japanese exhibition and the Chinese exhibitions, because I really think it's going to allow us to look at Latin American culture with all the kind of nuance and complexity it deserves. It's not just Spanish and indigenous, like there's all of these other layers that go on too.
0: At a moment when a presidential administration is pushing an America first, only and alone agenda, I think that the PST shows do a wonderful job of showing how interconnected all of the Pacific Rim cultures and countries have been for several hundred years. And that's kind of an impossible thing to take out of one show. But I think that as visitors and readers see many shows and and hopefully see many catalogs, that that will be unmissable. As usual with these PST shows, there are a lot of kind of group shows, you know, as we would maybe call them in the art world, and kind of history shows, shows that use visual culture to tell historical stories, which is great and thrilling and wonderful. But are there any retrospectives, any single artist shows or one or two artist shows or one or two artist projects that you're particularly excited about?
1: Before I get to the single artist show, I did, you know, the in terms of the historical show, I am really excited about one, and it's because I'm a biology geek. The visual voyages, images of Latin American nature from Columbus to Darwin at the Huntington is going to present an incredible variety of drawings and illustrations of the natural landscape. And I think that's important, too, that this is, you know, not just the place of coups and you know political tumult, that, you know, Latin America is also home to some of the great the great wilderness uh, landscapes in the world. And so I'm very excited about that show.
0: And and just if I can jump in for a second, those landscapes have had a huge impact on American art, particularly through Frederick Church and his obsession with Chimborazo. So, yeah, I'm that's that's a show I'm I'm, I'm pretty eager about myself. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean there have been generations of artists who have gone and chronicled the Amazon, the Atacama Desert, all of these kind of legendary places that are practically legendary in our minds. If you've never been to the Amazon, you still have this idea of what it is in your head and these are going to be firsthand documentations of it. And and so I'm really I'm really excited. I'm really excited to see that and and consider the continent in that way too. That, that the natural world, world does have a piece in, in this exhibition. In terms of the single artist shows, I'm excited about a couple of them. The first is Anna Maria Maiolino at MoCA, who, is, who, again, has this story that is as layered as the rest of Latin America. She is the daughter of Italian immigrants who had to flee Italy in the wake of World War II, ended up in Venezuela and then in Brazil, Through her mother's side, she has a connection to Ecuador as well. So she speaks perfect Spanish. I actually interviewed her for a story that I'm working on, on now. And she's this artist who, like a lot of women of her generation, not taken very seriously at first, spent Probably her her younger years focused on her children, and uh, in her forties really came into her own as this very significant artist whose whose work frequently touches on the visceral as well as that element of dictatorship. She lived in Brazil during the the Brazilian dictatorship. She's made these pieces that that serve as a, as a direct response to sort of. the the oppression that she felt in that era. And she's somebody who has never gotten a retrospective in the United States, but she's important within the Brazilian context and the Latin American context. So I'm very much looking forward to seeing sort of the ripple effects that, that an exhibition of that nature might have and then I'm also interested in the Juan Downey show at at Lace. He is a Chilean artist who who was also quite pan-continental. He, in the 70s he traveled, he went into the Amazon, he spent time with indigenous groups, he made these experimental films and very much a Latin Americanist, you know, trying to think about this pan-Latin American unity in a continent that can be so fractured but that if it were unified its response to the united states could be a far more significant one than than what it is and so i'm interested in in seeing what what his show brings as well. He's not an artist who's gotten a lot of airtime in the United States. There was a show at the Bronx Art Museum a few years ago, but I believe these will be the first significant shows of his work. I I believe it's two shows down in Los Angeles, one at the Pitzer College Art Galleries and one at LACE in Los Angeles. So I'm curious to see what of his work we're going to be seeing here in LA, because at this time of unity and disunity, I think his, his work will be interesting work to consider.
0: This might be an impossible question, and I apologize if it is, but is there anything you were hoping you would see on the PST lineup that isn't here?
1: Not having seen very many of the shows yet, it's a little hard to say. What I have noticed, however, is that a lot of the work does lean 20th and 21st century. There's one exhibition of pre-Columbian art that's going to take place at the Getty.
0: That will also travel to the metropolitan in New York afterward. Yep.
1: Exactly. So I am looking forward to that. And then there's a couple of the colonial art shows. I feel a little as if the 19th century is a little... It's a little absent on the whole. Like it's it's definitely the minority of of exhibitions. The Huntington will touch on it in in its show. The Laguna Art Museum will touch on it in its show. But this sort of like early Republicanism in Latin American, but you know, I'm talking about the sort of period of dependence and building of national identity and and, and all of the sort of cultural tumult that comes with that. I don't know that that is being totally addressed.
0: So I noticed that I noticed that, too. And let me jump in on that for a second. When when California and the American West began to take its Mexican and Spanish colonial past seriously or began to to, to find it interesting, both artistically and historically and and in terms of literature, that was in 1876 on, on the American centennial when an artist Carlton Watkins began his series of pictures of the California missions pictures which really kicked off uh, a great deal of interest in the missions and and almost concurrently a little behind Watkins's interest was Robert Louis Stevenson's interest in the mission in in, in Carmel and I feel that I, I agree with you I think that 19th that 19th century moment when when California uh, began to treat its historical, its recent historical past with honor rather than with disinterest at best is a weirdly missing thing.
1: Yeah, and then also these these moments of of. These constructions of national identities, it's interesting because the the other day I happened to pick up a catalog I have from the Hispanic Society in New York of the work of Pancho Fierro. And Pancho Fierro was this 19th century Peruvian painter with this fascinating story. He was the son of a slave and a priest. <laughs> so it probably tells you everything, you know, an entire cross section of Peruvian society right there. Who would do these paintings of what they called the costumbrismo? So, what what constituted Peruvian identity in the 19th century? What what made somebody Peruvian after all of these years of wanting to be Spanish? And he chronicled in in, in beautiful watercolors everything from street scenes, religious parades, a lot of fashion and style by a gamut of people all the way from street urchins to the ruling class so really this artist that was very preoccupied with the building of a peruvian identity in the wake of independence and so i was flipping through that the other day because i've just always been fascinated by his painting and by his personal story the fact that the son of a slave came to define the look of peru in the 19th century is to me very interesting and i realized you know we're Unless I'm mistaken, like we're not going to see work by someone like Pancho Fierro in this in this series of exhibitions. And that's a bit of a bummer. But I think part of what makes me hopeful about PST and I think what happened with the first series of Pacific Standard Time exhibitions is that the first wave of exhibitions generally leads to a second wave of exhibitions. You have all of these curators that have done all of this research and not everything can go in in the shows right now. And so I'm hopeful that those kinds of stories will perhaps emerge in exhibitions we might see in the future. We are a society that's a little contemporary art obsessed, so I don't hold out too much hope, but I'm hoping that those stories might be revisited because I think, you know, in this time of identity, and the building of identity of what is important historically, who should we be memorializing we're asking ourselves all of those questions like, wow, those questions are fascinating questions to ask within the Latin American context. It
0: would be great if someday, maybe even someday soon, if the Getty developed kind of a second tier grant program for shows that built on or jumped off from PST shows. So that institutions, maybe even the smaller institutions that get their hooks into something and want to go a little bit deeper, have a chance to do that in, in, in a second wave that may or may not be specifically tied to kind of a a a festival such as this
1: Exactly, and I know that, and I know that part of it all has to do with, you know, this is probably not work that a lot of these institutions have collected historically. So you really have to, for those kinds of shows, would have to build something from scratch, which is not cheap or easy. <laughs> so, so I do recognize that, but I, I hope that this has generated the interest in exploring that kind of history because I do, I really do believe that we as American society will find interesting parallels there to consider.
0: Let me tie up a couple things that we've touched on in the last question or two, but have left hanging. You mentioned the major pre Columbian show at the Getty. Its title is Golden Kingdom, Golden Kingdoms, Luxury and Legacy in the Ancient Americas. There is one other pre Columbian show, sort of. It's a collection installation at the Mingay International Museum in San Diego. That show is called Art of the Americas, Mesoamerican Pre Columbian Art from the Mingays' permanent collection the spanish colonial shows we've touched on a couple times without being very specific about them the headline of those shows the headliner of those shows is painted in mexico 1700 to 1790 an alona katsu production at LACMA. that doesn't open until mid to late november but that might be the most anticipated show of of the whole shebang and two santa barbara institutions the art design and architecture museum at uc santa barbara and the santa barbara historical museum are doing a two venue show titled Sacred Art in the Age of the of Contact Chumash Chumash were the Native Americans in in that region Chumash and Latin American Traditions in Santa Barbara and that opens next weekend. Carolina, we will have links to the mini stories you've already done including the with two with more on, to come <laughs> <laughs> with more to come including the the two on Radical Women at the Hammer. We'll have links to those on manpodcast.com. We're going to have links to all of the shows. We, we, we talked about. Is there anything you're excited about in this series that we haven't gotten to?
1: Yes, there's, there's a couple in particular that I'm super excited about. I think number one on my list is the How to Read El Pato Pascual at the MAC Center and the Fine Arts Complex State LA. The full title is How to Read El About the Pato Pascual Disney's Latin America and Latin America's Disney. And uh, this show, I think, is going to be for a number of reasons the first is it really what we were talking about earlier that interconnectedness between the United States and Latin America it's going to be the walls of this show these these Disney characters that an invention of animators who were based right here in Los Angeles in Silver Lake at the time And how they have been adopted in ways strange, bizarre, and political in Latin America, and how sometimes those ideas have bounced back across the border, and they've employed by culture here and even Disney here. And so it's this exhibition that is really going to look at this this dialogue. It's what one of the curators described to me as this hall of mirrors of like U.S. culture reflecting something to Latin America, and Latin America reflecting it back and back and forth, back and forth, and with an exceptional catalog to go with it. Because uh, if you're a student of history, if you're a student of Latin American history, if you're a student of animation, if you're a student of culture, it's gonna be the the kind of book that I think that I think is gonna be really interesting.
0: Awesome. Wow, can't wait. Carolina Miranda, thanks so much for speaking with me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Led by the Getty, Pacific Standard Time L A L A is a far reaching and ambitious exploration of Latin American and Latino art in dialogue with Los Angeles. At the Getty Center, related musical performances start Saturday, September 23rd at 7 p.m. with Sonorama, Latin American composers in Hollywood, Mexican Institute of Sound with special guests Sergio Mendoza and a band led by L.A.'s own Alberto Lopez play tribute to Lalo Schifarin, Maria Grieber, and other artists in the museum courtyard. Learn more about this show and other upcoming performances at getty.edu 360. Experience the high life of 18th century Europe through the eyes of its greatest lover, Giacomo Casanova. Luxury, adventure, intrigue, and seduction. With more than 200 works including paintings, sculpture, and decorative arts, in a major exhibition bringing his sensational world to life, Casanova, the Seduction of Europe, through December 31st at the Kimball Art Museum. Plan your visit at kimballart.org. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Memories of Underdevelopment Art in the Decolonial Turn 1960 to 1985 at its downtown location from September 17th through January 21st, 2018. In collaboration with the Museo Jumex in Mexico City and the Museo de Arte de Lima, Memories of Underdevelopment brings together artistic practices that, although evidently related, have until now been treated separately. Showcasing conceptual and performance artworks, this exhibition will shed new light on such well-known artists as Lina Bobardi, Elio Oiticica, and Ligia Pape, as well as lesser-known artists in Colombia, Uruguay, Chile, and Peru. For more information, visit mcasd.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Leila Cardenas. Her 2012 excision is included in Home, So Different, So Appealing, a group show at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art and the 1st PST PSTLA-LA LA show to open. It was curated by Chan Noriega, Pilar Tompkins Rivas, and Mari Carmen Ramirez. It'll be on view in Los Angeles through October 15th when it will travel to the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Cardenas is a Columbia-based artist whose work explores how history can be found in the physical spaces within built environments. She's had solo shows this year at her gallery in Bogota and at the nonprofit Dimensions Variable in Miami. She's been included in several recent group shows, such as the Orange County Museum of Art Triennial, which just closed, and The Materiality of the Invisible, which is on view now at several locations in Maastricht, the Netherlands. Leila Cardenas, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
2: Thank you very much, Tyler, for the invitation. We'll talk about specific
0: artworks in a moment, but first, are you a big fan of history?
2: A big fan of history. Mm. Well, that's a hard question to ask, I think. You will think so by looking at my work, but I will, I will go more on the side of memory than history. History always has so many problems. <laughs> I think I rely more on personal memory, collective memory, and of course the eventual intersection with history but very suspicious. Sus- see, did you say it like that? The suspicious of history.
0: Why are you suspicious of history and trusting of memory?
2: Uh, I think uh, I prefer the narrative of fragments. No, nothing that is uh, complete and linear and uh, and told always from the winning part. No, so I guess when you are critical about history. You are always trying to fill the voids with other information. And memory is just there to fill those voids. Of course, you cannot also rely completely on memory, but I think it's a more most uh, human approach, or at least it lets it let, lets you get, get lost in in stories. Some particular stories and not in a big history, like a, a central discourse of power, usually. So I think memory is more this act of recollection and uh, as you can tell, I'm very much into recollecting stuff from the world and making it part of a larger question.
0: Layers of histories and and memories recur throughout your work, especially in the the last few years. Maybe a good place to start work-wise is with the piece now at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art in the exhibition Home so different, so appealing. That piece, which is titled Excision, and is from 2012, addresses layers of memory and presence as expressed in a slice of a building. We'll have images of it on manpodcast.com. Where did the approach for how to make that piece come from? How did you decide that revealing layers in a three-dimensional way, which is a little different than work you made, say, in the last year or so, why was layers in a three-dimensional way an interesting way into an idea?
2: There were a couple of things that happened around that, that moment. One, I've, I have been working with uh, paint from, from ruins, you know, like paint that I will collect from walls, usually a lot of accumulation in those walls. And I took one of these samples to a laboratory of restorers. So they look at it on the microscope. I was hoping to get more, like, some information about age, but they gave me something else that was more rich, not an exact date or time in in history, but they gave me a um, a photograph amplified of all the layers of paint, different colors, the, uh, how thick the paint was, etc. And this was incredible because it was like a piece of three millimeters, and the sample that they returned to me was traveling back in time, like more than 25 layers of paint were in that little fragment. So this compression of time and space was very interesting for me and answered a lot of questions. No, sorry, asked a lot of questions. And then at the same time, I learned about endocrinology. So this study that you make in the trunk of a tree to know its age And you take this, like also an excision, you take a cylinder sample, like a cylinder shape sample of the trunk, and it will tell you information about how old is it, how many what, how much water it got, uh, things like that. So it's a very interesting, I I guess I was looking around for clocks, no things like materialized time. So nature has its its way, and architecture as well has its way. So, and also some some other factor was that I was concentrated on documenting 19th century architecture in downtown Bogota. That was usually the houses in disrepair and in a, sta- a state of transition, not 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 yet ruins, but nobody was taking care of them. At the same time, so in that documentation, I was looking for a place where maybe I could make this extraction like uh, the endocrinology will do on a trunk. I wanted to do in one of these walls. And then from that extraction, reconstruct the whole room or understand a little better the house. So it was uh, like a long process of finding all these sources and then by chance finding a house that was in, was being remodeled, but not really, it was being torn apart. And when I arrived to the place, the only room they had left was this one that was part of the reconstruction. And I had very little time to, to recover some of the, frag- of the fragments. I like you couldn't tell what was going on in the, in the, inside the wall. It was not made outside in like I wanted to. It was more inside out. And I just took as many as I could, pieces of the wall that was falling apart, and then photographs uh, of the ceiling that was this very ornamented plaster ceiling, very typical of that era or of that moment. And I took it to, with me to the, to the studio. But then the surprise came when starting, I started to peel some of the layers of paint, and the wallpaper was, was uh, starting to appear, and more than one layer. And then I called a restorer, and she helped me restore more than nine layers of paper. So it was like uh, a treasure, no, like completely unexpected. And that gave me the, the material for the piece at, at Lachman. One of the one of the fragments, no, like the wall was, it's a, it's a piece that is so complex and I can talk about it for a long time. But so, yeah, the wall has some elements to it, the ceiling as well, the exterior as well, the way of placing them. Of course, I, it was this kind of fragmentation and exploitation can you say it like that no implosion more implosion of the of the layers on the space in a three-dimensional way and on the one hand I wanted to show how well preserved the the layers were because the information from one layer to another transferred through time you no know? so you can really recognize what was behind I was able to reconstruct the whole wall thanks to the, to the pattern on the, on the paper that was transferred from one to another. So yeah, it was a puzzle of a, of a wall. And of course, if you start going deeper, then some of the layers had information of where, what were ported from. There was one from France, one from England. The first layer was very interesting because it was very beautifully painted. Very like a tropical with uh, trees and uh, parrot, and it was made in England and it had the inscription sanitary wallpaper. And that sanitary wallpaper was glued directly to the adobe structure of the wall. So adobe, of course, was the most primary way of construction, if you wish, and local and then you have this wallpaper with all these ornaments and information coming from somewhere else. On top of it was another one, even more ornamented. And then slowly the designs start become, start being more simple and minimal and then just color and then paint over it. So it was a reconstruction of the story of that house. And I find, I found out as well, the, um, some of the owners of the previous owners and and it got more and more complex and it made sense with other pieces i've done before so <laughs> it was a very rich piece to to the process and i think it's still going on it's not finished yet
0: <laughs> you mentioned materials that were in the house and that are in the artwork from many different countries not just colombia not just south america but but europe england was that something you expected to find in his excavating or finding and showing those overlapping distant trade route histories if you will within the piece is that important to your conception of why why you made it and why you make pieces related to it
2: Yes absolutely it was it was actually more than i expected so definitely had to it went, it took me to uh, to an, another place that where I started, and then, of course, something that we were discussing for the exhibition was that from it's incredible that from one room and from basically the information behind the wall, you can reconstruct or imagine the life and the and the different things that happened around that house it's, a, it's, a, it's located in a very important near. Like in downtown Bogota, but it's located near the um, presidential palace. So that house was there for in the middle of many things that were going on in the country. So from that room, you can reconstruct the house, then you can reconstruct the neighborhood, the city, and the country in a specific uh, moment in time. And it's really that ambitious, like the digging, no? Like I'm going that far. I hope the peace as well but it's a, it's just a starting point i guess
0: the lacma piece excision is related to i think you could say to a piece you made at a gallery called dimensions variable in miami earlier in earlier this year in 2017 and that piece is called reversed well, first, reversed is a piece that kind of excavates the gallery space, chronicling its history through what had physically been on the walls before. Am I am I being fair to that?
2: Yep, <laughs> okay. mm-hmm, exactly.
0: So I was, I'm struck in, in, in looking at pictures of, of reversed and in seeing the LACMA piece, how just really beautiful they are, and how a destructive process. Is made into beauty. How important is 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 beauty to how you want the work to come out?
2: I don't know. I've never think much much of it, or a lot about about the issue of beauty. But of course, for me, the these fragments I find, and then in the recovery process, sometimes it becomes very. I have to make aesthetic decisions and and decisions that I will a painter will make. I, sometimes I'm finding like ready-made paintings something like that but i can tell you that they are made very carefully like almost i pay attention to every detail of the of the undoing because i'm of course i think i'm a destructor <laughs> no i i work by undoing instead, instead of doing and so i try to be really clinical in the way i take away th- these layers apart or sometimes it's the only fragment you have from a space so you have to treat it like you know with all the care and attention to what is what it can show you and that piece in Miami was was very nice because they were renovating the space and they saved it was a very important place to show especially Latin American art from the 60s and so on and the Miami-Dade College of course has a an interesting history in the city as well. So as uh, from these walls, I started researching around issues of the city, not only artists that show there, but the um, location of the, of the college in downtown Miami and many other things that they are so subtle that you cannot tell from the installation, but were really important to make the decisions of what goes and what it's... Uh, it, no.
0: So there's this thread that runs through your work of the past and its relationship to the present and what we can learn about the past by, you know, kind of literally seeing it. The piece you made for the Orange County Museum of Arts just closed, California Pacific Triennial, does that in a different way. It, it, it's a sculpture that features rammed earth appearing to come through the wall, the white wall of a white cube gallery and into the space. Are these all parts of the same investigation into into time and its passage, or is the Orange County piece a little different?
2: I think I, can, I see the connections in all of them, and I guess they are uh, responding to the same obsessions, the questions about how to connect past, present and future in a single statement, like in a sculptural intervention. And that was that piece in that sense was very nice because it allowed me to 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 put that into consideration. The dirt came from underneath the museum, and it was just behind the wall where I was installing it was there for for ages it was a mountain of this dirt, so it was perfect because then that made sense like this coming out of the like coming inside the museum, but at the same time like maybe leaving the museum. And I worked uh, with an archaeologist and a geologist from the Orange County area that helped me to, she supplied some samples of uh, late Pleistocene sand. That is the sand that is as well from that location. And that's as well, uh, one little layer, super subtle, but it was really important that it was there. Like it has microfossils inside the sand. I saw on the microscope, but it's a, it's just a piece that I think compresses all these questions in in a very like one one strong statement into the space. No, like there was no nothing else needed. Everything was there. I really like that as well when I can work this way that I arrive to the space with nothing. The materials are already there. You just have to listen to to the space closely, and read the clues, and then things like this happen.
0: You mentioned working with an archaeologist, and a, a lot of your work, going back a number of years, seems to reflect an interest in archaeology. Did you study archaeology? Is it a hobby that found its way into the work?
2: <laughs> yes, I, I wish I wish I studied archaeology. I've never considered it, actually. I think I've, I would have loved to be an archaeologist. But it found me, yes, <laughs> I guess. I was using archaeological methods without knowing it. It was in a very amateur amateur way. And now, yeah, I, I got this grant from the Jan Van Eyck Academy where they made this uh, interesting open call to join artists and archaeologists to work together in a project. And it's been fascinating the the discussion and the dialogue with them because we have a lot of things in common, many questions about time and space and visibility that we share.
0: Finally, speaking of things you take from other disciplines, and we've mentioned a lot of disciplines in the last 20 or 25 minutes, one of, one of those materials that interests me is the pins you use. They're the type of pins one might see holding insect specimens or, or leafs to a board in, in a natural history museum. There are the kind of pins that you might use in 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 high school, you know, dissecting a frog or something. And I was wondering how you came to the those the, the pins that you use in work after work, and and whether it was just convenience and they work, or if you were interested in the relationship that you know, or or if you're interested in the way they kind of recur the, that very pin, type of pin recurs in so many different fields?
2: No, at the beginning as well was just part of the process in the studio. But uh, the other day someone asked me the same question and I looked back into my portfolio and I found a piece I did in college when I took apart a table and a little chair. And then all the pieces, it was completely abstracted, So it it opens, it opened up the space. So in order to reconstruct it, I hold it with pins, a little, of course, stronger than, than the ones I use now. But at, at that point, it it worked because you could see all the voids left by the separation, by the displacement of the pieces of the furniture. But it was all in a state of like freezing, but as well very fragile, the, this tension that really interests me, like you have it there, but not for long. So there are many elements to that. I've been using them for, for a while now. So the things that I work with don't belong to the space. They are always foreigners. I, they, they come very charged already, you know. So you have to treat them like in this museological way sometimes. Sometimes they are just very humble and they need this careful consideration, I guess. I like, of course, the... Then this, this shadow that appears, that separates it from the real space or the actual space. And it's, uh, it's, it's then foreign. It, it doesn't belong. You, know? you just have to pin it there momentarily. But they, they, they started as something very from intuition. And then I guess they haven't abandoned me. <laughs> but uh, it was uh, also working a lot with threads and needles. So sometimes I will leave the, the needles inserted into the space. So, so many things started. And now that I'm working with fabrics, all I see is all the time this analogy of the weaving and the own weaving. So they, they, they just make a lot of sense.
0: It sounds like you like the relationship that the material, the pins have to other fields and activities, though.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. Leila Cardenas, thanks so much for speaking with me.